Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Justin Quinn Olmsted. Professor Olmsted is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Central Oklahoma. And today we are speaking about his newest book, United States Entry into the First World War, The Role of British and German Diplomacy. Welcome, Professor Olmsted. Thank you, Charles. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Professor, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Uh, in a... I guess a more simplified version, my thesis is that um, there needs to be a closer look at, at the actual diplomacy that Britain and Germany used towards the United States um, during the American period of neutrality. Um, uh, it's, uh, in, in my view, um, the, the Germans get short shrift um, and the, uh, the British get overplayed generally. So, in essence, um, you're looking at uh, how effective Germany's and the UK's diplomacy was in the American context between 19, in essence, the book concentrates on the period between 1914 and 1917. Uh, yes, in essence, and uh, I will um, just add that I, one of the things that I, I try and do that's connected to the, the thesis here is that um, diplomacy, as the British and the Germans saw it, was not uh, just something that happened in 1914. There is a long game that, that uh, they play, if you will, that is um, um, built up to how they react to not just one another, but to the United States and how they deal with the United States once the First World War uh, commences. What were the uh, difference in closeness between the Anglo-American and German-American relations in the years prior to the outbreak of the Great War. So uh, it's it, when it comes to the British-American relationship, you know, it's it's very um, it's odd, right? I mean, the, the United States has this love-hate relationship with the British. Obviously, the issues with having been a colony and having had to fight, fight a war to separate uh, from the the British Empire, uh, Americans still felt very close. Um, that they had the common language, they had a lot of, uh, of other commonalities as well, and um, that plays into um, how the British and the Americans get along. Now, at the same time, uh, America is a, a country of immigrants, and so a large Irish um, immigration to the United States leads to a large Irish-American population that is rather hostile to uh, the British. Uh, we know, obviously, that um, uh, Irish patriots uh, during the war, there were a number of them that saw a, a, a potential British loss in the war uh, as uh, an event that would 
uh, give Ireland its its independence. Uh, and, and that goes as well to um, other um, immigrant groups from the British Empire, uh, such as, the, as um, Indians as well. Um, for the Germans, you know, again, Germany has a lot of, of immigrants to the United States as well. And at one point, I think something like 20 percent of um, non-native born Americans uh, are, are of German ancestry. So there's a large um, connection there as well as far as the, the immigrants. Um, the Prussia was one of the first countries to recognize uh, an independent United States. Um, they they worked to during the American Civil War to um, fund the Union. They they issued bonds to help the Union support their war efforts, uh, whereas Britain uh, and most of Europe uh, did not. So there's this, if you will, a closeness that's to, trying to be developed. Um, Germany spends their time working to to make a closer connection as well, right? So they have um, you have you have uh, professorial exchanges, um, Johns Hopkins University uh, with their uh, contingent of uh, of German professors institutes a, a um, graduate scheme that suddenly becomes what all American universities use, and it's it's a it's a German university scheme. Um, the you know, Kaiser eventually sends his uh, uh, brother over to travel America and try and make a connection with the Americans and, and uh, um, build that relationship and tighten that relationship. Uh, while at the same time, uh, Germany is is often seen as um, militant, uh, as um, trying uh, aggressive and trying to. Um, create world hegemony uh, for themselves, and that butts up against uh, American ideals of um, as as the United States attempts to have its own place in the world and its own empire. Um, so you see you see the two countries butting up against each other in in far off places such as you know Samoa and and, and China uh, and the Philippines when they could have easily have avoided those those issues. So that for you would explain why prior to 1914, the image of Germany declined in the United States. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are um, there's a um, an issue with pork. Germany doesn't want to. It's essentially a trade issue between Germany and the United States, um, and there are, are threats that get thrown back and forth across there, uh, you know, across the ocean. Um, when you look at, at the issues in Samoa in particular, uh, you, know, you get threats of war from American senators uh, that if Germany doesn't back down. And so, yeah, this this whenever the United States came up to Germany, it was it was rarely a um, um, it, was, it was rarely harmless uh, in, in, the, in the as far as Americans saw it. There was always a competition with Germany and and. It, it makes some real sense the fact that both countries are are young countries in comparison. Um, both countries are trying to find their place in the world at the same time, and so they become kind of natural competitors um, at the at the same you know, time frame in that eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties era. Why was British Great War diplomacy so successful in manipulating, if you allow me to use that uh, term? Colonel House and President Wilson. Um, I, you know, I think I, there's a number of reasons, but I think that we can start with um, some naivete on on House and Wilson's part. Um, 
they I don't want to take anything away from either man. Both of them were very good at things they have done in the past. I think that Wilson makes a lot of good decisions uh, as president. House clearly has a very good political mind. He made his you know his name in Texas. He he identifies Wilson as somebody that can take him to the national stage, um, and he then works, if you will, behind the scenes um, to help Wilson uh, as he goes along. But he has these aspirations of being a great world diplomat um, with with no background behind it. So when he goes off to work uh, and and talk to the British and the Germans and everybody else. Um, he, he's at a distinct disadvantage, and this goes back to my uh, my comment earlier that you know, the, the British and the Germans have have been playing this diplomatic game for you know, centuries. America has always looked at the diplomacy as kind of a dirty thing that has to be done, and so they only deal with it um, when they have to. It's it's you know event by event, whereas the the British and the Germans both. Played as I mentioned earlier, that long game. It, whatever the diplomatic policy is, it can it can maneuver, it can it can change, but it's all part of a greater plan. Um, and and Wilson's just not used to this yet. Um, when it comes to the 1913 through 1918 um, time frame, you know, Sir Edward Grey is, you know, despite any faults that people may may uh, attribute to him, he was good at his job. He understood what uh, other diplomats were trying to do. He understood what their personalities were like. Um, I mentioned in the book that uh, one of the things that, that both Germany and, and uh, Britain did well was use their ambassadors in other countries to provide them with information um, about individuals. So in this case, uh, President Wilson uh, and Colonel House uh, are uh, – their dossiers get sent back to London and Berlin about their personalities, about what they like, what they don't like, uh, what their uh, um, weaknesses are, if you will. So when when House meets Sir Edward Gray for the first time and Gray sits down and just wants to chat with him, I mean, this is this is what House wants to see happen. He wants to um, not deal with the the pageantry of European diplomacy, right? That's that's what so many. Uh, Americans dislike because it feels fake. Uh, so when you know, the server grace is down with house, it's personal. They can chat about anything and everything under the sun. It appears that um, the conversation flows from one subject to another. And that's what makes, in many cases, British diplomacy so successful. House feels at home with Gray. Gray, um, Takes the time to flatter him, uh, even after uh, you know a meeting, catching him you know the next day, uh, and just saying, ah, just wanted to tell you how much I appreciated uh, the conversation and how much we we like you and uh, uh, the president, and I'm going to make some comments on the on the on the floor of Parliament today uh, towards that end. Um, you know, bringing in uh, names like such everything from the you know the prime minister to um, the the the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that, those kinds of, of, if you will, the titles, even though it is pageantry, are still flattering to people like um, Colonel House. Uh, and so by getting in, if you will, with on the, his good side and talking to him, that makes a huge step towards um, a successful uh, diplomacy on the British part. Uh, the other thing I would say that makes the British um, 
so successful uh, in this case is that they are um, gray not only uses flattery, but he also puts things off. Right. So if there's something he knows that, that House and Wilson don't like, he can say, well, let's not let's not worry about that right now. We can change that uh, and he can um, uh, postpone decisions um, that might uh, affect the relationship only to bring him back later when he's had uh, the opportunity uh, to to gauge the American reaction to things. Uh, was not Wilson's and House's proposed Anglo-German-American coalition? This is pre-Great War at cross purposes with British Entente policy. British Entente policy uh, is something that is, um, I think, often misunderstood. I mean, the the whole point for the British uh, uh, with the Entente is to uh, free themselves from the budgetary restraints that would be um, placed on them if they were to maintain. Uh, standing armies to deal with the Russians or with the, with the French. Uh, it was all related to, you know, freeing up pounds to uh, do other things with, whether it's working with the Navy or, um, more importantly, dealing with civil issues. So when when House and Wilson want to see uh, something done um, that is with the you know with the British and the Germans, you know. <sighs> Sherba Gray thought that Russia was going to be the the great stabilizing force in Europe. He did not believe that Britain had to be the bulwark against uh, a rising Germany. So if there was a potential to to work with with Germany, I don't think Britain was necessarily opposed to that at all. Uh, why do you say that British diplomacy had quote a point of domination over American diplomacy circa 1914? Because I think that, um, as I mentioned a little bit ago, the British were just more adept at it. The um, the British were uh, playing a longer game, and they they could see from the conversations basically that their their ambassadors had with um, uh, American diplomats uh, and their own like Sir Gray's discussions as well. They could see what it was the United States wanted to achieve in many cases, and they were able to. Um, Almost like the, to use the word you used, manipulate uh, the Americans to the direction they wanted to. I think it was Samuel Flagg Bemis that ma- made the original compliment or the, um, uh, comment about uh, the the domination of British uh, diplomacy over uh, American diplomacy. And again, it goes back to the Americans didn't like it. The Americans weren't good at it. The British did like diplomacy, and they were good at it. Uh, and so they were able to maneuver things to, to their positions. Why did President Wilson not try to enforce on the UK strict adherence to the Declaration of London as per neutrality rights? Um, so that's a, an excellent question that gets, I, I think that um, it's built a hole uh, in um her book, A Scrap of Paper, really goes into great detail on that. But the general I- I- idea is that he didn't um, find it in America's best interest in many cases, right? So the United States um, starts trading with all the of the um, 
the combatants uh, because the United States needs the money. Right When the First World War begins, the United States is on the verge of a recession, uh, and so they see this as an opportunity, despite what Wilson says um, about not wanting to participate in war and that cash is um, is is one of the worst is almost worse than um, um, munitions itself. Um, he sees the need for the United States to develop these things. Um, when it comes to trying to enforce laws of neutrality, uh, you know, again, this goes back to what the British did, what Monsieur Grade did does well. You know, they can stop lots of ships at sea. However, they never go so far as to um, really antagonize the, uh, antagonize the president. Uh, you know, I mentioned that Sir Edward Gray goes to the Admiralty and, and, and encourages the prize courts in, in London to uh, move quickly on any ships carrying American cargo to move them along quickly. Um, they, uh, through diplomacy, they find out that the U.S. is sending out a, a basically a test case ship so that if, if the British stop it, um, for and to search it for contraband, that um, if the United States could then potentially um, um, really bring this up uh, in a court of arbitration, if you will, with the British or, or force a, a point. Um, and the British use the French to stop the ship instead. Okay, so they 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 turn things on on their heads to keep the Americans um, off balance. Uh, I would also say I think that. You know, not just from the, the politi- political and diplomatic acumen of of Gray and, and and the British themselves. One of the reasons that that Wilson, I think, hesitates is his individual um, love for uh, everything British. Right? I mean, he's he's quoted as as having you know, said, you know, everything that I I love, you know, the dearest or hold the most dear in the world is um, is English, um, and the British knew that and they used that to their advantage uh, as well. Did the British ambassador to the United States, Sir Archibald Spring Rice, have a good relationship with President Wilson and Colonel House? Um, you know what? Difficult question on that one. The idea that he has a good relationship with Wilson's um, is rough because, one, he was very close to Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Wilson didn't interact individually a lot with people. Um Sir Spring, uh, Cecil Spring Rice did work with um, Colonel House, and they knew that House had Wilson's ear. So if he was in good with House, they felt that they could get their point across to uh, the president. Um, and, and that being said, I don't – it was – I can't say that it was a great relationship, but I think that it was not a bad relationship, uh, if that makes sense. Why was Amer- the American response to German – Declaration of a war zone around, uh, I'm sorry, around the British Islands, so much more forceful than its response to the UK violations of neutrality rights. Well, because um, the there, there's a distinct difference, uh, I think, in most people's minds between stopping a ship, hauling it into port, holding it there until they've decided whether there's contraband or not, and then releasing it or taking the you know the contraband off the ship um uh and and which is what the british are doing and sinking ships the high sea which is what the german unrestricted submarine warfare was intent on on doing um so i think that 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 plays a large uh part in it um we also have to remember that 
1914, submarines are still relatively new. Um, people see them as sneaky <laughs> because they're under the, you know, they're under the water and they they can they can sink a ship without warning. Whereas you can see a surface uh, ship uh, as it approaches you. Um, so even just the 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 thoughts of what could occur using submarine warfare plays uh, into this uh, and, and with the loss of life. And I think that goes a lot towards Wilson's um, personality to his belief system, um, to his um, uh, Presbyterian background as well. You describe the diplomacy that resulted in the Arabic pledge as, quote, a triumph for Bethmann Holweg. Bethmann Holweg being the German Imperial Chancellor. Why? Why was it a triumph? Well, because he was able to continue the um, uh, submarine warfare at this time, right? I mean, the, the idea being that the the Arabic is is, is sunk, but it's not. Um, uh, I think the, the the ship, the, the submarines were on the surface. They were able to kind of uh, keep the Americans at bay. Um, one of the things that I also I want to I point out in the in the book is that when um, when the Germans would sink a ship, and if there was loss of life, it it was kind of a, a mea culpa that that would occur, and they would begin negotiations to with the United States to figure out how much those lives that may have been lost were worth. Um, and then they would offer to make that payment to the, those families. And this is something that has happened. You know, for a hundred years prior to this as well. So for the Germans, this was nothing new. But it, it, it in making these, doing these negotiations with the United States, that essentially allowed them to continue using submarines, even if they, in this case, after the, the Arabic pledge, that they would surface and 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 fire the warning shots and search the ships uh, and try not to just sink ships um, uh, that are coming going unconditionally. What was the House Gray Memorandum, and why was it important? So, I, I, in many cases, the House Gray Memorandum gets overblown as well uh, in history. The House Gray Memorandum, uh, is Colonel House and Sir Edward Gray get together. Um, Sir Edward Gray gets House to pledge American support for Britain and the Allies in the case that Germany refuses to uh, negotiate a peace. So the idea here is that the British and the Allies will make a peace offer to sit down at the table with with the, the Germans and, and and pound things out. If Germany refuses to come to the table, the United States would join the war on the side of the Allies. Um, the the importance of it being that this would would force America into the war. Um, the what becomes important about it. Is that it? It makes it seem that the United States is on board with the Allies and that they're they're happy to go to war. When in reality, House comes back with this this agreement, and the president inserts the word you know probably into the into the um, agreement. So instead of saying the United States will go to war on the side of, of the uh, allies. It says the United States would probably go to war. I mean, it changes the entire meaning of the document. Um, but for the British, what's important is that they believe that the, the they ha now have um, American support to destroy German 
uh, Germans' military might, uh, simply because Germany says, no, we're not going to sit down. They, it makes the Germans seem even more warlike, more uh, less willing to to end the the destruction and the death, uh, and it sets America pretty clearly on the side of the British and the and the uh, Entente. Uh, was not the main problem with Wilson's attempted peace efforts that the British were unwilling to negotiate in uh, 1915, 1916? So I think it's um, fair to say for both countries were, right? So in 1915, 1916, from the British point of view, militarily things aren't going so well, and they're not willing to sit down and negotiate from a, a position of weakness. The same thing occurs um, – Later on, with with the Germans, the reason they don't want to sit down and negotiate uh, in many cases is because they've had some military setbacks. They don't think that they'll be able to negotiate from a position of strength, and so that that just that's from all belligerents during the entire um, uh, term of the war. Uh, why did Bethmann Holweg make his peace offer of 12th December 1916, and how did Wilson react to it? So Bethmann Hallvig's uh, 1916 peace uh, offer is is again it's a diplomatic move. If if peace um, is achieved at that point, if everybody's willing to sit down uh, and negotiate, then that is great for everybody. It's great for Germany. The, they can stop the you know the slaughter of their own people as well. Um, but the the Germans had realized that despite you know, the fact that they were, in a, they were in a good position, Germany itself was, there's several allied um, offenses that had um, uh, been blunted with great loss for the allies. Um, and despite the fact that the Ottomans and the Austro-Hungarians were not in great shape, uh, Germany was in pretty good shape itself and they were able to, to kind of hold their own. So they saw the attempt to destroy the, the the French and the British uh, militarily um, also by keeping the Americans out. So when Bethmann Hallweg makes his uh, 1916 peace uh, um, uh, attempt, it is, if we get peace, great. If not, we've attempted, we have convinced the Americans that we want to um, have peace, but it was the British and the French that rejected it. So therefore, the Americans should stay out and allow us to finish them off militarily. Uh, and Again, this was part of the idea because Germany knew that even though they were in a good spot, they didn't have much longer to go before they were in a in a, a bad spot due to the, the British blockade and just um, uh, food issues as well. Um, the, the Kaiser and and the military had, had asked uh, Bethmann Hallweg to to you know clear the the diplomatic routes for unrestricted submarine warfare. They truly believed that if the United States stayed out, they could choke the British out of of the war and defeat uh, the the French on on the battlefield. So it um, much like the uh, Sir Robert Gray's uh, um, the House Gray Memorandum trying to get America in a position to either come into the war or stay out. The Germans are doing the exact same thing with Bethmann Hallweg's peace um, attempts in 1916. Why did German Foreign Minister Zimmermann send his uh, letter to Mexico offering an alliance with Germany if the United States came into the war? You know, I, this is actually one of the, was one of my favorite parts um, of this book to, to research and to write about. 
uh, we generally look at the, the Zimmerman telegram as a, as a massive blunder on Zimmerman's part. And the fact that he admits to it is just even more mind boggling to, to many people. However, right. If we look at the long game for, for Germans going all the way back through Bismarck, the idea of entangling your enemies or your adversaries in other, um, with other issues, with other small wars. I mean, that's a large part of German foreign policy. I mean, you think of the, the the Kaiser's position in the in the Boer War. Um, think of um, Bismarck's reasonings for for getting involved in colonialism uh, was just to keep the French and uh, and the British tied down elsewhere with uh, with with um, colonial issues. So <clears throat> for Zimmerman's point, if the job is to keep America out of the war, Germany needs to keep them tied down someplace outside of Europe. Well, the most logical place at this point in time is in Mexico. And you know, just in the recent history of, Ameri- of American-Mexican uh, relations uh, in, the, in the early 20th century, he has just piles of reasons to why Mexico and the United States should be at each other's throats. Right? We can look at everything from the, uh, the incidents in Tampico where U.S. troops are – um, rampaging through the through the city on Veracruz, where they fire on on, uh, uh, on 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 Mexican troops there as well. Um, we have issues of the the Mexican Revolution uh, and uh, Pancho Villa raiding uh, into the north, crossing the the uh, the Rio Grande and into the United States, and being pursued by not just the the contingent of of American cavalry uh, in Columbus, uh, New Mexico, but you know, a third of the U.S. Uh, Army under General uh, Pershing that comes down in forays for about a year in northern Mexico. I mean, these are issues that the United States and Mexico has that Zimmerman recognizes. And if Mexico is willing to say, yes, we'll side with Germany uh, and, and we'll go to war with America, that should tie down more American troops uh, and American supplies. If America's at war with Mexico, or even if they think they may go to war with Mexico, they can't send guns and bullets to France. They're going to need those for their own troops. They can't send troops to France. They're going to need their troops on that Mexican border. Um, and in the long run, it does not matter to the Germans really whether it's a true threat or not. So if America – as long, all it needs is America to believe that it's a possibility and to tie down, to tie down their troops. Um, so for Zimmerman's mind, he's making a very Bismarckian diplomatic move to try and entangle America outside of Europe. Is that why he admitted it? Yeah, for him, for, for Zimmerman, there's there's no reason not to admit it. I mean, and that's kind of his reaction. Yeah, I, yes, I did. Why wouldn't I? Why would I not have done this? It's the best thing for Germany if America gets tied up with Mexico. Why did the British wait one month to inform the Americans about the letter? Um, so I think that there, the the British didn't one. It's it's about um, intelligence, right? They they don't want the Germans to know that they've broken the code. They don't want um, them to understand that that all everything that they're sending out is being intercepted and and transcribed. Um, they also don't want the Americans to know that they are reading their diplomatic mail, 
right? So there's a couple of different things that they're trying to um, uh, to hedge their bets on. On top of that, they really thought that the um, resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare by German by Germany would drive Wilson into um, the war. I mean, throughout 1915, 1916, and 1917, you have um, you know issue after issue where House um, or um, uh, Heinz in, in um, uh, Page in in, um, in London uh, or Wilson themselves were making these comments about you know the loss of American life, the loss of American ships um, are going is going to drive the United States eventually into this war. So as Germany starts sinking ships, um, there's a grand hope that. Um, that's what will bring America in. It becomes more uh, organic that way than America just can't deal with, with Germany's um, uh, destruction of commerce in the open seas. Um, and so that will bring them in. Um, when that doesn't happen, the British are a bit incredulous. They don't understand why, and they finally have to put the letter out there because now, now it is Germany directly threatening American sovereignty uh, and um, Americans will take a lot um, from other countries, but they won't take that that direct threat um, of a of a possible in invasion. Who would you uh, rate more highly as ambassador, uh, Count Bernstorff or Sir Archibald Springrice? Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, I think I would I would probably go. Uh, it's difficult. I think I think Berenstorf has a, a tougher time of it, right? Because he is uh, he's German. The Americans see the Germans, particularly on the East Coast, they see the Germans as the aggressors in this war. Um, they uh, so with that, Berenstorf is always playing catch up. So uh, all the information that the United States gets about the war gets filtered through a British lens. So Beresov is constantly having to try and respond instead of getting out ahead of of the news service, uh, and so in that case, I would rate him really highly. Um, you know, I also think again that he's a, a guy that was likable uh, and was able to make friends easily, uh, and I, I would even say that it's his his diplomatic acumen that allows um, Germany to to keep America at bay for so long. Um, uh, Spring Rice. Um, Gets frustrated with Americans. Uh, his letters back to Gray in many cases are are negative. Um, his close friendship with with uh, Roosevelt sometimes gets in the way of, of issues with 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 House and Wilson because uh, Wilson and Roosevelt really aren't that close. Um, but so I guess if, you know if if you're forcing me to choose, I would say that um, that Bernstorff is overall a a, a better diplomat. Reading the book, one almost comes to the conclusion that the Americans did not possess in this period almost any agency and that the USA was almost a puppet in the hands of a more masterful British and German diplomacy. Was that the impression you wished to convey? Um, short answer, yeah, I, I, I did. I, I wanted to, to let people know, I mean, maybe not that the Americans were, were puppets, but that they were easily influenced, um, that other countries saw the ability and used the ability to to manipulate House and Wilson um, to do 
their bidding, whether it was to remain out of the war for as long as they did or to eventually get into the war. What inspired you to write such a wonderful bibliographical essay? Um, so thank you for that, by the way. The, uh, it's nice to, to hear it called a bibliographical essay ever called wonderful. Um, the it comes down to in many cases to my my PhD supervisor uh, Timothy Baycroft uh, and my external reviewer Brian Holden Reed uh, in particular both pushed me to to um, talk about the books that I was I was looking at in part because they are uh, they're not all new so some of the books and some of the articles that I utilize are from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s and have been not disregarded but put on a shelf and, and kind of and left there by a lot of historians, more recent historians. And so to be able to go back and say, look, some of these books deserve to be looked at again and here's what they're talking about um, was, was actually an awful lot of fun and it, it made um, – uh, if you will, all the additional reading that goes into writing a, a, a book um, feel more worthwhile, if that makes sense. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? <laughs> um, one thing away from my book? Um, I, uh, that's a hard question because I'm not sure that there's just one. I, I think that if Maybe I, could, I would say um, most – the one thing to take away from my book is that despite everybody signing on to international agreements and international law, everybody, every country, every diplomat, every politician is willing to break those international laws and norms if it means the survival of their, their country or their government. Um, and in, in this case, you can look at it from both – um, uh, Bethman Hallweg and Zimmerman, um, um, or Sir Edward Gray and um, the the blockade and um, the orders in council um, that that he helped pass that that um, restricted American trade to to the continent. With that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Olmsted, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Olmsted. Thank you, Charles. It's been a pleasure. I had a lot of fun with it.